I'm going to invite Louise to come and read Daniel 1, verses 1 to 7. I'm going to be asked to be forgiven before I start because I've got all the long names that I can't pronounce. (laughs) I've practiced, but I'm probably wrong. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These be carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them in the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Haniah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved... No, that's it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. So there's no doubt uh, that over the last 50 years, Australia has become and is becoming increasingly secular. Uh, During uh, that period, the the number or the percentage of Australians who have identified as Christian has halved. And over the same period, um, or maybe slightly longer, perhaps beginning in the early 1960s, uh, the moral zeitgeist of our society has shifted enormously. In other words, the overall perception of what is right and wrong, acceptable and unacceptable, good and bad, this has changed. Now, some of the changes have been really positive, uh, but for the most part, our culture is moving away from mainstream Christian beliefs and values. Christianity is countercultural, uh, but that's nothing new. Christianity has always been countercultural. In fact, worshipping the one true God of the universe has always been countercultural, and this will become evident as we work through the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. It's going to throw up some interesting questions about how we as Christians should live in a world and a culture that has positioned itself in opposition to God and his kingdom. But first we need to orientate ourselves. Who is Daniel? When and where is this book set? What is God doing? What's happened to the Israelites, God's people, and why? And these are important questions, and to answer them, we need to, we need to start quite a long way back and then gradually zoom in. So you've all heard of King Solomon, King David's son. He was the last of Israel's kings to rule over 
an undivided kingdom because after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split in two. You had the ten tribes in the north. Uh, they became known as Israel. They retained that name Israel. Uh, the capital was in Samaria. And you had the two tribes in the south uh, that became known as Judah, and their capital was Jerusalem. And I've uh, put it on a, a map of the modern-day uh, Middle East so that we can see where those areas are. This division of the kingdom of Israel was a tragedy for God's people. But what made it even worse was that both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom continued to rebel against God. The Israelites had been set apart by God to show the nations what it looks like to worship the one true God. They were called to be different from the other nations and to reflect God's goodness and glory out into the world. But instead of being a beacon of light to the nations, the Israelites adopted the detestable practices of their neighbors and of the Canaanites who had occupied the land before them. Idolatry, worshipping the demon gods of Baal, Molech, and Chemosh. Child sacrifice, temple prostitution, you name it. Not only that, but their society became unfair, oppressive, and morally corrupt in every sense. It's bad enough that the other nations did those things, but for God's people to do them, it just seems so much worse because the reality is so far removed from the expectation. You know, if, if North Korea is guilty of human rights abuses, uh, that's abhorrent, but we kind of expect that. But if Australia was guilty of those same abuses, then it's somehow uh, more shocking and, and obnoxious because it would fly in the face of our perception of Australia as a country. And it's the same at an individual level. You know, if you hold a position of authority and trust and you do something heinous, then people will be even more outraged than if it was Joe Bloggs doing it. And if you are known to be a Christian in your family or your place of work, people will watch you more closely. For example, in some workplaces, Swearing is commonplace, no one bats an eyelid, but if there's someone who's known to be a Christian and they swear, everyone will notice. Our witness to the world is important as individuals and as a church, just as it was for the Israelites. And that's why this series is so important, because we're going to be thinking about how to be an effective witness. How do we point to God and his kingdom when we're out there in the world? The kingdoms of Israel and Judah were not being a good witness to the surrounding nations. In fact, they were defaming and scandalizing God with their disgusting behavior. And the big question here is, will God bring his people back into line? And the answer is a definitive yes. But God's chastisement doesn't come out of the blue. When the Israelites escaped from slavery in Egypt, when God freed them from that oppression, they then wandered around the Sinai Desert for 40 years, living as nomads. And then they entered 
the promised land. Before they entered the land, God gave them a message through Moses, who had, of course, uh, guided them that whole time. And here's what the Lord said to them. And it's a slightly longer reading, but it's worth reading in full, so I will. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Now I think this is the key bit here. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witness against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. Moreover, Uh, God sent numerous prophets to warn his people of the impending disaster. The uh, prophets were ignored, ridiculed, and persecuted. Their message fell on deaf ears, hard hearts, and eyes that had been blinded to the truth. But God cannot be mocked. And uh, this is is all a bit of a a history lesson, I guess. But uh, in the end, the northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians and its people carried off into captivity. The ten tribes known as Israel, the northern tribes, they were uh, dispersed throughout the Assyrian empire and they never returned to the land as one homogenous people group. That's why they're often referred to as the ten lost tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom, Judah, survived just over a hundred years more, but in the end its people were carried into captivity by the Babylonians. So welcome to Babylon. The year is 600 BC or thereabouts, and the southern kingdom of Judah has been decimated by this Babylonian superpower, uh, which uh, kind of overtook the Assyrians as the main power in uh, that part of the world. Uh, God's people have been enslaved and exiled in Babylon. And this is exactly what the prophets said would happen if God's people continued in their shameless rebellion. In the Bible, uh, Babylon is the archetypal symbol of sin and rebellion against God. Uh, Babylon is portrayed as a violent beast that glorifies in its own power. attempts to redefine right and wrong and refuses to acknowledge God as king. Now, conquering your weaker neighbors, if you are able to do so, was standard practice in the ancient world. And there were various ways to ensure that those you defeated remained under your control. The Assyrians favored uh, dispersing people groups throughout its vast empire a divide-and-conquer type strategy. Uh, That's what happened to the northern tribes. Uh, They were so well dispersed and scattered that they could never regroup and come back together. The Babylonians, on the other hand, 
favoured assimilating their captives into their culture and religion, a kind of gradual indoctrination that would cause a people group to lose their sense of identity so that in the end that they're all just Babylonian. And that is what's being described in today's passage, starting with the most influential members of society. The king ordered his officials to bring young Israelite men into his service. And they had to be uh, from the royal family or the nobility, uh, good-looking, intelligent, switched on. He selected those with the most potential, but also those with the most influence. Because if God, uh, sorry, if, uh, if the king could um, indoctrinate this influential group of people, he'd have much better chance of controlling the rest of the populace more easily. Plus, he would get some very capable and well-trained civil servants, for want of a better word, into the bargain. But this uh, method of changing the perspective and attitude of a nation hasn't changed in the last two and a half thousand years. In our day, uh, many of the social changes that we've witnessed in our lifetime of which, from a Christian perspective, some are positive and others are not. These changes have occurred because they have been endorsed and pushed forward by the most influential members of our society. On the one hand, people in powerful institutions, so uh, the media, education, and politics. And on the other hand, by people held in high esteem at a popular level, so uh, music artists, movie stars, sports personalities, and so on. I think what I'm trying to say is that any society, culture, or nation can be greatly influenced by a relatively small group of people. And sometimes that's a good thing, and sometimes that's a bad thing. When it comes to something like the abolition of slavery, which began with a small group of Christians in England, well, that's obviously a good thing. But if we think about, for example, the secularization of the nation, this desire to push God out of every sphere, then I would argue that that is a bad thing. So as Christians, if we are to live in a world that is fundamentally opposed to God, we need to be very careful which voices we are listening to. And for the Jews who are exiled in Babylon, they have a choice. They can repent and return to God, or they can allow themselves to be assimilated into the culture and religion of the Babylonians. Which voices will they listen to? And for these young men, these influencers who have been uh, brought into King Nebuchadnezzar's service, it's going to be very hard for them to go against the grain. They were probably teenagers, 16, 17 years old. They were being offered tremendous perks and privileges, an apprenticeship that would end with a job in the palace. They were given a daily allowance of food and wine from the king's table, free education in the language and literature of the Babylonians, which would almost certainly have included uh, Babylonian religion, cultic practice, magic arts, and all kinds of other things that Christians ought not to be involved in. Some of those young men might have been thinking, well, what has Yahweh, what has the God of Israel done for us? 
He's allowed our land to be pillaged, our temple to be desecrated, and our people to be carried off into captivity. It's a pretty, pretty bleak picture for Israel at that time. But for the thoughtful Israelite, the key word there is allowed. God has allowed this to happen. God is still in control. The very first words of this book say this. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim. The Lord's judgment had fallen on Judah after hundreds of years of rebellion. And to think back to some of those things that I mentioned, idolatry, child sacrifice, temple prostitution. This is serious stuff. The Lord's judgment had fallen on Judah after hundreds of years of rebellion and countless warnings. And yes, the southern kingdom did have some good kings who brought about reforms. That's why Judah lasted a little bit longer than Israel. All of Israel's kings were a complete disaster. But overall, the picture is still one of idolatry, injustice, and rebellion. God was not vindictive towards Judah, but he does use some fairly extreme measures to bring his people back into a place of true worship. God loves his people. He wants the best for them, and he's always working out his good purposes. And we do well to remember that, especially when things aren't perhaps going the way we would like them to. How many Jews were able to see this in the early years of Babylonian exile, I don't know. But we do know that not all of them ceased to worship God, despite the chaos, the confusion, and the uncertainty of exile. Among the young men who were brought into the king's service were four friends who were determined to go on worshipping God and serving him no matter what. They show us what it means to faithfully serve God, even in the most dire of circumstances. And they demonstrate how to live as God's people in a culture that has set its face against God. Their names were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means God is gracious. Mishael means who is like God, and Azariah means helped by God. If a group of lads introduced themselves and gave those names, introduced themselves as God is my judge, God is gracious, who is like God, and helped by God, you'd probably think they're probably from some pretty devout families. Not everyone in Israel had abandoned God. There were still those who could worship God. Uh, Daniel is renamed Belshazzar, um, but throughout the book he's continually referred to as Daniel, which I'm grateful for because Belshazzar is not an easy name to pronounce. And you probably know his three friends by their Babylonian names, the ones given by the king's officials, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Over the coming weeks, uh, we're going to see these four friends dealing with extreme pressure and tension as they seek to remain faithful to God under the spotlight in Babylon. Remember, these guys are being closely watched. They've been called into the king's service. 
It's a high-pressure situation. Uh, They managed to walk the fine line of uncompromising faithfulness to God as well as diligence in their service to the kings Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius. So this book spans the reign of three kings. So it's good to know that as Christians, we can serve a government, even a corrupt government, and remain faithful to God, although sometimes it is a very fine line to tread. And there are times, of course, where you just have to say, no, I can't do that. I can't go along with that. And we're going to see that with, uh, with these four friends as well. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah wrote from Jerusalem to the exiles in Babylon with a message from God. And here's part of that message, Jeremiah 29, verse 7. He says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So although the Babylonian empire is this pagan, anti-God culture, these Israelites are to work for the benefit of, of that city where they've been exiled. And that's exactly what Daniel and his friends did. They behaved in a way that was pleasing to God, and he was faithful to them, not just to them, but to all his people in exile. Again, from Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 11, here is God's promise to his people. Whilst they were in exile, this promise was fulfilled, which we see later on in Scripture. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed in Babylon, completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And do you know what that promise stands for each one of us here today? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Isn't it wonderful that God's plan to give Israel a hope and the future included the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom God's love and forgiveness is made available to the whole of humanity? And if God can do that through such a rebellious nation, what might he do through us and through the church of this day? So in a nutshell, we're going to explore the struggles, temptations, and tension associated with living as God's people and according to God's way in a culture that is largely doing the opposite. And when I put it like that, this may begin to sound familiar. Of course, we're not going to be thrown into a fiery furnace like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're not going to be thrown into the lion's den like Daniel. But the New Testament makes it clear that we are living as exiles in a foreign land. The New Testament makes it clear that we, as Christians, are living as exiles in a foreign land. Listen to 1 Peter 2, 9-11. said, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles 
to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now, in a way, some people might read that, you know, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. They might, they might hear that and sound, that sounds a bit elitist. But nothing could be further from the truth because that invitation to be part of God's family, to be part of his beloved people, that invitation is extended to everyone. And we are to extend that invitation to everyone. And of course, we know that we don't become part of God's family because we are good, but because God is good. But anyway, this, this is Peter addressing the church, addressing us as foreigners and exiles. This world as it is now is not our home. We are foreigners and exiles. How could a sinful, broken and fallen world be a permanent home to God and his people? Our true home, our eternal home, is a renewed and restored creation where God actually lives alongside his people forever. That won't be a reality until Jesus returns. In the meantime, we are to live in such a way as to point to God's goodness and glory and point to the future reality of God's kingdom being fully established forever. And the book of Daniel provides some amazing insights on this subject. And that's what we're going to be exploring over the coming weeks up until Advent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that uh, Christianity is countercultural. But also we might have a tendency to assimilate to the surrounding culture, to, to blend in, to not be distinctive enough in our in who we are as your people. And we pray, Father, that over the coming weeks, you help us to to take this on board and to to resolve to, to be different, to be willing to stand out, no matter what the cost. Father, help us to love people as you love them. Help us to love the people around us. Help us to love our families, the people at work, the people we come into contact with. Father, we pray that when people meet us, they will see something of Jesus in us, the love, the acceptance, the, uh, the beauty of Christ. Father, give us a deep desire and a passion to be like Jesus, to follow him, to emulate him. Father, we pray that we can be a positive force for good in this community, in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.